to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. They're checking out the bomb shelters in Hawaii right now, according to Fox News here. Hawaii lawmakers are dusting off the state's emergency plans in preparation for the possibility, however remote, of an attack on the islands. This all coming as a result of the recent face-off with North Korea here. Buck Sexton, great to be with you all now. Thank you so much for joining. 844-900-2825. A lot of rhetoric and media coverage and attention on North Korea. Uh, I want to get into what's real and what's not here and how we should be putting all of this into context. Uh, There's a a competition, it seems, right now to get away with the most uh, glaring and uh, attention-grabbing headline about the possibility, however remote it may be, uh, of a military exchange with a country that is both uh, uh, crazy enough and capable enough to make it a nuclear showdown, um, and this is the reality we now face with with North Korea. So you have uh, Hawaii, as I said, inspecting the bunkers, which haven't been looked at since the 1980s, just in case. Which you know, I understand that they realize this is a, this is remote, but it does feed into the narrative right now that tensions with North Korea are much greater than they've been in. A long time. I want to get into some discussion of that with you. But first, you have uh, National Security Advisor uh, McMaster speaking about this issue over the weekend. You also had Mike Pence himself at the DMZ uh, between North and South Korea. So the vice president making an unannounced visit there. But let's let's start with uh, McMaster for a moment here, because last week there were those reports about from NBC News about a possible first strike, which seemed to me, as soon as I read it, that is pretty irresponsible reporting. Not what you want to be putting out there as uh, a a realistic possibility when it is, in fact, a very remote uh, remote possibility, uh, thankfully, for all involved. Uh, but you had McMaster saying that, look, they are... They're looking at all these options. They're dealing with all these options. But this is more a change in policy and tone than it is a change in uh, direct post- uh, posture vis-a-vis our forces and North Korea. Here's what National Security Advisor General McMaster had to say over the weekend. Military options still on the table. All, all options are, are on the table, going, undergoing refinement and further and, development. And how close do you think North Korea is to having a nuclear weapon capable of reaching the United States? Well, you know, estimates in these sorts of things vary widely. What is clear, as long as, as, long as their behavior continues, as long as they continue 
uh, missile development, even though this was a failed missile, uh, they get better and they learn lessons. And so, so what's critical is for them to stop this destabilizing behavior, stop the development of these weapons, and denuclearize. And that is in the best interest of everyone in the region. And ultimately, it's in the best interest of the North Korean people uh, North as well. Koreans that's the goal here, to get North Korea to denuclearize. That's going to be very difficult, by the way. North Korea views its nuclear program as the only guarantee of the regime's survival, really the only guarantee of the North Korean state's survival. So they view it as existential. I don't think they're going to give up nukes anytime in the foreseeable future. Um, and, in fact, if you want to take the most negative possible view of this, or the most negative view of it that is, I think, likely and realistic, North Korea is just seeing its programs improve and get better with regard to missiles and nuclear weapons, despite all of the international sanctions and the efforts that have been put in place up to this point to stop them. Hasn't stopped them, slowed them down a bit, but certainly has not stopped them. So what we are doing is not, over the long term, working. And this is the recognition that this in that this now, um, what is it, we're almost 100 days in, this new administration is dealing with, that Kim Jong-un, and before him Kim Jong-il, uh, had a lot of leeway to pursue their policies without much pushback from the Obama administration. Um, you had a, a strategy of strategic patience. That's what we were told President Obama was pursuing with North Korea, which is a fancy way of saying sit and wait or hope and pray or I don't know. You you can come up with your own version of it. It's not much of a policy or a strategy at all, is it? Anyone can sit around and do more or less nothing or just allow the status quo to continue. I shouldn't say nothing. There were sanctions in place, although not particularly targeted or smart sanctions. There were efforts to, to keep North Korea isolated. But as we see, isolation is not the same as a stop in its programs. Isolating it as a country and as an economy doesn't mean that it can't still get its hands on some very, very dangerous technology and refine that technology. With each missile launch, it learns new things about the capabilities of its missile program. And certainly with any nuclear test, the same is true. So this is now now you with the Trump administration, they are the ones who are raising this so that everyone really understands we can't this is not a situation where we can just sit and run out the clock. Uh, and that was largely the Obama foreign policy on a whole host of fronts. But that was certainly it on Syria. It was the Obama administration's approach on Afghanistan. It was the Obama administration's approach on North Korea. It was sit back, don't do anything, and then think yourself brilliant for your inaction. That's what they were doing. Look at how smart we are. We haven't started a nuclear war or, or any kind of major conventional war. We're brilliant. Don't do stupid stuff was the, uh, the overriding principle, as stated by senior Obama officials, of their foreign policy. And they don't seem to understand that inaction and brilliance are not the same thing, and that avoiding a war in the short term, if it means you're going to be in a terrible position and have an inevitable war in the long term, is uh, not a sound strategy for any administration to pursue. And with North Korea seemingly hell-bent on getting nuclear weapons, how how can we think we have time on our side here? It reminds me of the, the Churchill quote that the, um, that I think he was referring to Chamberlain, but that the uh, they had the choice between 
war and dishonor. They chose dishonor and they got the war anyway. We don't want to be in that position. So now Trump, the world he's inherited from Obama, who inherited a very ineffective North Korea policy from the Bush administration before him. I'm not just going to sit here and do the partisan hack thing of, oh, it's all Obama's fault. This is decades in the making, but certainly the last eight years did not help and were particularly weak on this issue. Um, But that also doesn't mean that we can start thinking that a military solution, an imminent military solution to North Korea is is possible, desirable. It is absolutely not. Uh, There is no way to stop North Korea from destroying South Korea without massive loss of civilian life. And let's keep in mind, as in as insane as the North Korean regime is, and insane is a difficult word to use here because, yeah, creating a cult of personality around Kim Jong-un that does feel like it is a totalitarian religious order, right? It's not, it is not what we see even in other authoritarian societies. You pray to the dear leader. I mean, the dear leader is everything to people in North Korea, but this has been enforced on them. They are prisoners in their own country. North Korea is a giant prison camp. And we don't want to have to harm a whole lot of innocent people to stop North Korea from harming a whole lot of innocent people in South Korea. So the military solution is not in any way desirable, nor is it imminent. And I wish members of the press, including those who should know better, most of them don't. Most people in the media are just like, oh, you know, whatever, just go with whatever people are saying. Who should know better shouldn't be stoking the fears uh, on this one and ratcheting up the anxiety of a possible military exchange. General McMaster also addressed uh, this issue. So it's time for us to undertake all actions we can, short of a military option, to try to resolve this peacefully. And so we're going to rely on our allies like we always do. But we're also going to have to rely on on, on Chinese leadership. I mean, North Korea is very vulnerable to pressure from the Chinese. So in the coming uh, weeks, months, uh, I think there's a great opportunity for all of us, uh, all of us who are really under the threat now of this unpredictable a regime uh, to take action short of armed conflict so we can avoid the worst. Operative phrase there, short of armed conflict. He repeated it, I think, twice in that one soundbite. When you have the New York Times running with a headline over the weekend, slow motion Cuban, Cuban missile crisis. I, I don't know how much more hyperbolic and inflammatory it's going to get than saying this is similar to the Cuban missile crisis where we... Uh, face the possibility of a nuclear exchange right off our shores with the Soviet Union via Cuba as launch pad for their missiles. Uh, I, I don't see that happening. And, and yes, you can point to the rhetoric of North Korea, which is always going to be unhinged and crazy. Although, as I said, crazy in the context of North Korea is true of the regime's way of holding itself up and its uh, its ideology inside of North Korea. It has acted within rational lines based on what its goals are, right? North Korea wants to destroy South Korea and unify the Korean Peninsula. That's what it wants to do. And to do that, it wants to acquire weapons that will be able to defeat South Korea either so quickly, so precipitously that it doesn't matter who South Korea's allies are, and then it can just take over. And we hear this, of course, we think it's crazy, but if that is your end goal, taking steps along the way that get you closer to those kinds of military capabilities, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, who knows what else they have and they've managed to acquire on the black market and from their own internal research. Um, but they've been staying within the red lines, right? There's a reason why we haven't up to this point 
had a military exchange with North Korea. Military exchange is a is a, a euphemism. There's a there's a reason why we haven't had to fire a whole lot of missiles of who knows what kind and kill an untold number of people in North Korea to prevent a uh, a, a genocide in South Korea. It's because North Korea has not yet gone to that level. So it's not crazy as in it acts without reason. The regime is crazy to us because you're holding up some, uh, you know, some pudgy 32-year-old punk as a deity and put him in charge of millions of people in this country that it, it almost defies belief. It's almost unfathomable that such a country could exist in the 21st century, but it does. Uh, but they are acting within their long-term framework of trying to get these nuclear capabilities to destroy South Korea, uh, because really the existence of the North Korean regime is militaristic. It is expansionistic. They they do not accept. Yeah, there's an armistice, but there's not a, a truce. There's, there's not long-term relations with South Korea. They do not accept that the war is over in any meaningful sense. This is just a very long rearming period for North Korea. When you put it in that context, a lot of their actions starts to starts to make more sense. The Trump administration sees this. The Trump administration is saying, look, you can't just sit around and wait. Imagine if Obama had another term or two. Does anybody doubt that you would have had a continuation of the same policy? What do we do? What do the news broadcasts sound like when all of a sudden it becomes clear to us through a test or through whatever means we come to know about it that North Korea does have the ability to hit mainland United States with a nuclear weapon? What does that, how do we, how do we sleep that night? That changes the calculation dramatically. And of course, I read you from, from Fox News right now about how in Hawaii, a whole lot closer than the mainland U.S., we have to, uh, they're taking this seriously, at least from a preparation standpoint. And then you look at our allies, I mean, South Korea is just across the DMZ. I mean, they could lob artillery shells with, with you know, who knows what uh, into South Korea. And of course, they could hit Japan and so it's a very real problem that has been festering for years, and now you have administration that's willing to face it. And that's the difference, isn't it? And the media is reporting on this, by the way, with a breathlessness because, well, on the left, let's all understand that for the most for most of the media, the story isn't so much the uh, showdown, the face-off, the you know, the squaring off with North Korea, it's Trump's taking us to the brink of nuclear war. That's really the implicit story the media is running with here, that Trump is 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 being reckless. You know, oh, Trump's tweets, if he keeps this up, we, we might be in a position where we have a nuclear war. And that's what the media is trying to get people to think about. But on the other hand, the Trump administration, those who support Trump are saying, OK, well, we're not going to start a military conflict with North Korea. But we do need to take seriously that they are trying to get nuclear weapons that they can fire at the United States and anywhere for that matter. And what we're doing is not stopping them right now. So we need a whole rethink. I, I want to get more into that and also the messaging behind a whole bunch of Trump foreign policy and military policy in recent days and weeks. Uh, 844-900-2825. What do you think about Trump's approach to North Korea and foreign policy more generally? Light up that board team. We'll be back in a few minutes. And as our Secretary of Defense made clear here in South Korea not long ago, we will defeat any attack and we will meet any use of conventional or nuclear weapons with an overwhelming and effective response. Strategic patience has been the approach of the last American administration and beyond. The era of strategic patience is over. Here's Mike Pence, the vice president, letting everybody know that there's a new sheriff in town, that things are changing now, that the approach 
that uh, the Trump administration is going to have across the board, but most notably on North Korea, which is the, you'd have to assume, among the likeliest places in the world where there could be a, a nuclear uh, a nuclear attack of some kind. Against whom, I don't know, and in what capacity, I don't know, but uh, there aren't that, there are only uh, a certain number of nuclear armed states to begin with, and we're not worried about, we're not worried about them except really for North Korea. So, uh, Pence there is making it clear that this is a change from what has been the case in the past. Um, the way the press is reporting on this, of course, we're supposed to think that Trump is being reckless, that this is that this is somehow Trump's fault. Meanwhile, the numbers show that Kim Jong-un is trying to see what he can get away with. He is, he is taking the measure of this administration. It's in the Wall Street Journal today. Pyongyang has pushed ahead with its missile program in recent weeks, testing eight missiles in five separate tests over the past 10 weeks, including one that fizzled out after launch on Sunday. And a day before that test, North Korea had paraded what appeared to be at least one new intercontinental ballistic missile through the streets of central Pyongyang. So a part of what we see happening here is, of course, a response to what North Korea has been doing. I, I think it's interesting that I, I've heard and read some focus focus on how, oh, well, Trump, look at this shift in, in Trump policy well, from what the policy was before. Is it really feasible to expect or is it really sensible to expect that the Trump administration, that the commander in chief is going to sit back and do nothing while these provocations continue? Firing off these missiles is not nothing. Right? They, they, they improve their weapons capability. They become a more dangerous. North Korea becomes a more dangerous state as it has greater capability and understanding of its capability from these tests. Uh, we start to we're starting to be forced to answer the question: What would we do if North Korea? What what if North Korea did shoot down a passenger jet, or what if North Korea did transgress even what it's been doing in recent weeks, months, and years? Uh, what would our response be? You know, we need to start thinking about this because it does seem as though there is an acceleration of belligerency from. Kim Jong-un right now. It does seem as though, yes, he's testing Trump. He wants to see what he can get away with. Um, and the, the media, of course, reports on this. Well, it's for two reasons, by the way. Uh, you know, you have, and, and this is a great litmus test of where any news outlet stands on this. Everyone's reporting on it because it's a big story. It's, it involves um, an evil dictator, nuclear weapons, military force. It attracts attention with good reason. So it gets ratings, which means that everyone's going to report on it because it gets attention, and again, as it should. But what the underlying themes are, that depends on what you think of the administration. If you're on the left, as I said, it's Trump's recklessness is taking us to the brink of a, of a, military, of a military fight with North Korea. If you're on the right, however, and I'll get into this more right after the break, what we see is a reassertion of American primacy on the world stage. What you see is the Trump administration saying, we're going to stand up to bullies. Yeah, you're, you're darn right we're sending messages. No more of this, oh, crazy dictators can act like maniacs. We're going to go hide in the corner and cry. None of that. More on this in a minute. A lot of talk in the last couple of weeks about the difference in approach 
when it comes to the uh, Trump administration and its predecessor, the Obama administration, the difference between the two men at the top, Obama and Trump, uh, and how they view the world and how they view America's role in it. Um, You have seen a few acts, uh, most notably, of course, the missile strike against a Syrian government airfield in response to a chemical weapons attack against civilians. You have seen a Moab drop on a network of Islamic State fighters tunnels in Nangar province in eastern Afghanistan on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And some, including myself, but many, I should say, have pointed out that this certainly does send a message. These changes in approach, while not militarily all that significant, and let's be clear about that, the, the drop, dropping a, uh, a Moab in eastern Afghanistan does not change that conflict. It perhaps signals a change in our intentions in that conflict, nor does shutting down an airfield with strikes against planes and hangars and such for 24 hours or so have all that much impact in the Syria conflict. But it tells us that things will be different here going forward. And in case we had any questions about that, I mentioned to you before that Vice President Pence was at the DMZ, um, where you have North and South Korea literally squaring off. You have the soldiers who are eye to eye. Uh, Interestingly enough, it has at least been reported in the past that North Korean soldiers, because of uh, malnutrition, uh, which is pervasive in North Korea, were substan- and they're of course trying to present their largest, strongest soldiers for that frontline display against South Korea. Um, but I, again, I remember the journalist Christopher Hitchens noting that North Korean soldiers were six inches on on average six inches shorter than their South Korean counterparts, uh, as a result of the just widespread and prevalent. Uh, malnutrition. It's pervasive in North Korean society that it is a police state. You can't, well, when you're at that level of autocracy, everything is affected. And that's the way they want it, that Kim Jong-un and his top generals, they want the North Korean people to feel as though everything is affected. But but you had Mike Pence uh, speaking about this after, after going to the DMZ in an originally unannounced visit. And as to those of us who were saying that the Trump administration wants to send a message wants everybody, particularly the bad guys, but also our allies. They, it's good to reassert our uh, our strength. And yes, American leadership and military hegemony on the world stage. It, it is important for our allies as well. It's not just about showing the enemies that we are not going to tolerate any nonsense. Uh, but Pence said this. He made it quite clear. Just in the past two weeks, the world witnessed the strength and resolve of our new president in actions taken in Syria and Afghanistan. North Korea would do well not to test his resolve or the strength of the armed forces of the United States in this region. Mike Pence is just making it as plain as can be. This administration is not going to play by the same rules as the previous one, and the previous administration allowed our interest to erode and in some places collapse because it had a, a self-righteousness in inaction. You know, let's just sit back and not do anything, and then we can't be blamed for doing something wrong. Well, a lot of very bad things can happen all over the world. One of the root fallacies 
of the liberal, and I, I don't like that term all that much, as many of you know, I believe progressive or leftist is better because especially today, uh, liberals are the antithesis of liberalism. They are anti-liberal, but I'll use the term because it's just in common nomenclature. It's how we talk about it, uh, how we talk about them now. Um, but I'll try to also, I'll try to say leftist more often because I think it's more accurate. But leftists have this conception that infects every aspect of international relations in their mind. And I've come up against this debate against people at CNN and all, all over the place. Occasionally even a, a caller here or there, although not recently, uh, on radio. Um, and it's, it goes, it's a, a version of as follows. If America wasn't meddling and doing all this bad stuff in this place or in that place, it would be so much better off. And it would be left to the inhabitants, it would be left to the indigenous population, be left to the citizens of wherever to determine their own future. It's American involvement that causes so many of these problems. You'll, you see a version of this with South Korea. Oh, it's the, it's the tens of thousands of U.S. troops on the Korean peninsula that are inflaming tensions and causing all these problems. You, find me a place where there's a hot spot. I mean, you even have a, you had people in this country saying that Syria, the Syrian civil war is a result of climate change. And if only America had taken more of a lead earlier on climate change, yeah, you, the lun you can't make it up. I mean, the lunacy is just mind blowing. But they believe that America is, uh, I, this is the, the root fallacy, and it's because they believe uh, they are making a root fallacy or a baseline fallacy, and it is that America is the root cause of so much of the problems all over the world. And most notably, if we weren't involved, there would be this version, version of, you know, your body tries to keep you in balance. It's what, homeostasis? There'd be a version of international homeostasis. There'd be a a status quo that is pure and that is uh, untainted by aggressive imperialist power. I mean, it's just, and then you sort of think, wait a second. So if America doesn't do anything, let, let's just take a recent case study. We didn't do a whole lot in Syria. And it should be noted that Syria is a country where we haven't done a whole lot in a long time. Syria is not an American puppet. It's a, a, a hobgoblin of the international community. I mean, Syria has been in deterioration for a long time, but it's, you know, it's not our fault. We haven't deposed anybody there. We haven't, no, no, no fancy stuff from the U.S. policy community on Syria. And in fact, have had some cooperation from them in the war in, well, uh, originally um, against Saddam and the first time around. So uh, this is now a place where we look at Syria. We say to ourselves, hold on a minute. Uh, we didn't do all that much. What happened? Oh, that's right. The Iranians got involved. And jihadists from all over the world on the banner of Jabhat al-Nusra got involved. And the Russians got involved. All these outside powers, not global powers, but all these outside entities get involved. And the, the side that we want to see do well and win, which I know this begins to sound cliched, but yeah, we would like, we would like a form of pluralistic democracy to flourish in Syria. We would like to see rule of law and civil society and women's rights. We would like to see all that. Unfortunately, we can't make it happen for them, as we have learned in other places. But if we just got to pick, if it was, you know, sure. But what you see is that we don't do very much in Syria at, at all. And when I say don't do much, I'm not talking about invasion. I'm talking about sitting back. The Obama administration sat back and just talked to me. A lot of U.N. talk. Go back and look at what the reports were, you know, 2013, 20. 
2014. A lot of, oh, well, the U.N. is going to, we've got U.N. inspectors or the U.N. is going to handle this. The U.N. is not going to do anything. In fact, the shift that we see with the Trump administration is away from a U.N.-led world, which means no leadership, to a U.S.-led world, which may mean imperfect leadership, but at least it is leadership with good intention and a foundation of liberty and justice and individual rights and respect for humanity. I'm not saying we get it right all the time and everything. Of course not. But at least we're trying and at least we're showing leadership. The U.N. is a joke. It's a joke. It's useful for food and aid programs in some places. But in terms of national security, the U.N. Security Council, come on. But so we didn't do much in Syria. And we see that the rest of the world that has an interest in Syria just fills that vacuum. And that's what I meant about the root fallacy, that if America did less, things would just be better. It's such a simplistic, almost childish point of view about how the world works, right? Oh, if it wasn't for America, if it wasn't for America uh, and its relationship with, I don't know, with, with Mubarak, Egypt would be this great place with, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, with all the Islamists and Islamist support from all across the Middle East and jihadists trying to overthrow the regime and the Russians getting more involved, the Iranians getting more involved. I mean, do we really think that the Chinese look anytime there's a vacuum in the third world somewhere, the developing world, I guess we call it now, uh, where the Chinese view uh, see interests that they can pursue, they just do it, whatever that may be. So the absence of U.S. leadership and the absence of U.S. connections is not some uh, paradise where there's no interference and things just happen the way they should and people are left to their own destinies. Never mind the fact that we're oftentimes talking about autocracies where to wipe your hands of a situation and say nothing and do nothing as the world's sole superpower is to allow, is to stand idly by while a lot of people are condemned to slavery and mass murder and even in some cases genocide. Now, I'm not saying we rush in and Put the uh, you know put the U.S. put U.S. Marines on the ground every time it's a problem somewhere. You know our Marines have got to handle our problems first and foremost. The defense of this country and the Constitution, and that doesn't that doesn't mean sending them to go fix everybody else's problems. But there are things short of invasion, and this is one of the false choices the Obama administration offered up. There are many options short of invasion that can bring about better outcomes, and one of them is just how you approach foreign countries at the top level, whether the Secretary of State, Vice President, the President himself, Secretary of Defense. What do you say you want to happen in air? Who do you give rhetorical support to? When you're, when, when you're America and you have the best military in the history of the world, the most powerful non-nuclear and nuclear arsenal in the history of the world, you, you don't have to go around pounding everybody into the ground to make a point. You just have to speak clearly and with purpose, and that's what the Trump administration is trying to do now to establish new norms that were eroded from the previous norms that were eroded under Obama, whereby the expectations that other countries have of what our reactions will be were very, very malleable. This is, of course, where you get into the red lines issue, but on a whole host of issues, right? whether it was Missile defense for allied countries. Oh, the Obama administration doesn't want to ruffle any feathers, doesn't want anyone's nose to get out of joint. So they they would back off on those issues. No, we are going to support our allies. We're going to tell our enemies that if they transgress, there will be proportional response to their transgressions. And yeah, that that means that there will be more action. And this is very this is of course a, a deadly serious business when you're talking about U.S. national security and the way that we are 
dealing with rogue states and enemy states. Let's be clear about that. Enemy regimes. North Korea is an enemy regime. It's not long ago that we had a president that was calling them part of the axis of evil. Well, once you understand that an entity is evil, you should deal with it based on that understanding. And under Obama, it was all, it was just a misunderstanding, you see, whether it was Cuba or or Venezuela or Iran or North Korea, if only we just were a little nicer to them, maybe they would be nice to us. That's another root fallacy of leftist international relations thinking. Fallacy number one, if America didn't do stuff, nobody else would, and they would be left to their own devices in whatever country we're talking about. That, that there's no such thing as a power vacuum for other countries if America steps out. That's nonsense, uh, but it's popular on the left. Um, and we look at this now and we just see this continuing. We, we can see what happened with Obama and his years in office. Um, and, of course, the creation of expectations of U.S. conduct at some level is a very good thing. But also, I, and I, I know some of you are probably thinking about this as well, that, that Trump is adding something else into it. He's creating a broad set of ideas that will be acted on, but not telling anybody how he will or will not act. Uh, as they like to say in this administration, I've seen it. We've actually had we've had uh, Dr. Gorka on the program here before. He said, we don't give away the playbook. That's what the Trump team keeps saying. So Trump saying, just behave, which is what he's been saying about North Korea, really establishes the only principle that he expects that he has to with North Korea, which is you got to step out of line. There's going to be consequences. Do I have to, I don't have to tell you what they are. There'll be consequences though. And you, you know what our expectations are based on years and years now of U S North Korea interactions. Um, So this, this is a change, my friends. It is different than it has been in the past. Um, And this is a reasserting or reassertion of American leadership. It's going to feel disruptive. And yeah, at times it might even make us a little uneasy because changing this around from what it has been means that there will be some friction points. There will be ruffled feathers. There will be some very, very bad people who have been put on notice and they do not like that. So uh, Spicer gave a press conference today, as as he often does, as White House press secretary. I watched the uh, whole thing. I was over at Fox Business hanging out with uh, Trish Reagan on her show, The Intelligence Report, and doing some TV hits. And I got to sit there and watch it. And he addressed a few things. One of them was the visitor logs question that came up or issue that came up last Friday. We talked about it. Uh, my point is that, look, this is the, the policy that's existed from the beginning of time since they were kept. Um, and through the last one, and the last one was a, was a faux attempt at that. Again, it's not really being transparent when you scrub out the names of the people that you don't want anyone to know were here. Um, and so I think that we've made a decision to stay in line with the law and follow the same procedures that everyone else. I, 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 again, I, I don't really, I don't understand this from a strategy point of view. And, you know, I, I just, I would like a better, ex- I didn't really get what Spicer was, was going for there. Because, yeah, the, the Obama, so the Obama administration's version of transparency is transparency means we disclose a data set. But we, but we withhold the right, um, or we maintain the right of scrubbing that data set as we see fit. That's really the, that's really the antithesis of transparency, isn't it? I mean, that's like... The Soviet Union saying, well, you have, you know, you have full access to the archives. You can see anything in the archives. 
And you say, and they, but you know, we will take uh, anything we don't like and remove and put fake information. And and you're like, well, that's not that's not exactly transparency. That's really the, that's propaganda. If you're if you're going to offer up information from a data set and then you're going to change it as you see fit without any explanation, what's the point? But then I just wonder well, with Trump, I, were they just trying to dispense with the pretense of it being transparent? Uh, are they just? I don't know. I would like to get a a better answer um, than what we've seen on that. Uh, so so far, to me, it, it's not a big deal. The press makes a big deal out of it, of course, because any effort, any data point that can make it seem like Trump is doing something shady, they love. They latch onto it. They magnify it. They amplify it. They shout it from the rooftops. And then, of course, there's the issue of the tax returns that they're also... This has now come back up as an issue. In fact, you've even got uh, celebrities out there. Deborah Deborah Messing? Uh, okay. I don't even... Who's Deborah Messing? She's on a, a show? Will and Grace. Okay. Uh, what are we Mr. Trump, to do? if you have nothing to hide, then please hey, release them. Why not? Because if you release them... Anything the you American people can feel rest assured that at least well, our democracy is protected. Donald! Think about the rhetoric. Uh, if we see Trump's tax, uh, if we see his tax returns, then we'll know democracy is protected. I can, do I have to point this out often, often even to, to friends of mine who are somewhat conservative, to, to even some very conservative, although not necessarily big Trump supporters? The federal government has the information. There's nothing in Trump's tax returns that is, quote, secret in the sense that if it's criminal and problematic, the federal government already this is this is disclosed by its very definition to the federal government, to the most troublesome and overly powerful agency of the federal government. You think he's going to hide the Russia conspiracy by saying, hey, IRS, uh, here's all that money the Russian oligarchs paid. me." It's just insane. But we'll get into this more. I'll be right back. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Our friend Andy McCarthy is on the line. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, a best-selling author and contributing editor at National Review. Andy, great to have you. Buck, great to be with you. Happy belated Easter. Thank you for making the time. Um, because we are now in Kim Jong-un, North Korea, nuclear weapons watch mode, the media, nothing really today, at least, about the Russia investigation, Russia-Trump collusion, surveillance, any of that. Where, But where do you think, let's start with the uh, the surveillance side of this, because I know you've been writing on it at a National Review. W- what do we know at this point? I mean, where has this gone? So we had Susan Rice come forward and say, uh, that she didn't do anything wrong, that she was just, that the unmasking was, that, that that's normal, that happens. Um, where does the investigation stand, as you see it right now, into finding out whether FISA or any other apparatus of the U.S. intelligence community was abused for political purposes? Well, I think, Buck, you hit the nail on the head when you say things have seemed to get gotten quiet on that front. Uh, when things get quiet, meaning the media is not... Uh, uh, claiming that Obama has been vindicated, what that usually means is that there's bad news that they don't want to talk about. And I think in this story, what's happened is there's more and more indication that the foreign intelligence collection powers of the government 
were exploited by the Obama administration uh, for pretextually for purposes of doing uh, monitoring on their political opposition. And the interesting question right now is whether that started with Donald Trump uh, or if it predates Donald Trump. And I think there's a, there's a growing body of evidence that it predates Trump. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, analysis that was done by Lee Smith at Tablet Magazine in the first week of April, which talks about how the administration in connection with the Iran deal targeted uh, Israeli officials, including Netanyahu and the, uh, the Israeli ambassador, Derma, uh, to the United States, not only to get their position in opposition, you know, their strategy for opposing the Iran deal, but also for the purposes of sweeping up their communications with American congressional leaders, uh, American con congressional officials, and major Jewish groups in the United States, all of whom also uh, were strong in opposition to the deal. And this enabled them to sort of keep tabs on the opposition and you know, get a step ahead of them as, uh, as things went along. Uh, if, if that happened, uh, and I think there's pretty strong evidence that it did happen, that would be a classic case of using the surveillance authority or the foreign intelligence collection authority pretextually for uh, political purposes and with a purpose to uh, spy on Americans who they knew inevitably would be uh, incidentally uh, captured in terms of their or intercepted in terms of their communications. And you were a federal prosecutor for a couple of decades. I mean, your, your gut at this point tells you that, that you think something with the intelligence collection and the revealing of, of, of names and all that, you think something happened here. Is that fair to say? You can't tell no, me what exactly, but you think something. I mean, you know, I'm asking your, for your analysis, not a definitive statement, but you feel as though this is that there's something dirty. I feel that there was an abuse of power. That's if I was investigating this, that's the way I would investigate it. I'm not satisfied that uh, prosecutable crimes were committed other than leaking uh, classified information to the media, which is a serious felony. Uh, and I think if you could prove that there was a scheme to do that, uh, you know, you, you could have a lot of people implicated in it, but that would be a very tough thing to do. I'm of a mind, Buck, that the abuse of government power is a much more serious matter than whether any prosecutable crimes were committed such that somebody could go to jail over it. Um, usually, prosecutions in the criminal justice system are about you know, essentially private misconduct, whereas abuse of power uh, is really an abuse of a position of trust and a use of the awesome powers uh, that the public entrusts in public officials in order to do things like keep the country safe, uh, when those are used or exploited for political advantage, that's a that's a very serious matter. And as to the debate that you, I mean, I know you wrote about this in on NationalReview.com, the debate that's coming up over intelligence collection authority, the U.S. government currently has. You know, I, I'm somebody. You know, look, I, I work in the IC. I go I go back and forth all the time on on whether I think on balance we we're, we're pretty close to where we should be as a country in terms of 
the collections being done, or sometimes I sway to the other side and say, you know what, there's they always want more tools. This was true when I the short time I spent in law enforcement as well. When you ask people that have a job, do you want more tools or less tools? They're always going to want more tools, and they always think their judgment on it's going to be great. I, I think people might look at this, and I know this is your position now too, that it, at least it's a possibility that Congress will have to look at intelligence collection authorities that it currently gives to the federal agencies with a little more skepticism because we've been told yeah, well, the distrust, right? But should we trust? Well, yeah. I, well, I think, Buck, I, I'm to give a little background here. I, I'm where you are. Uh, I've always been a strong proponent of these powers, and that goes back to the fact that I became acquainted with them in terrorism investigations in the in the 1990s. So, you know, I, I think they're extremely important to keeping the country safe. And frankly, I've always thought that the remedy that that uh, Congress came up with after the uh, after the spying scandals of the 70s was an illusory one and one that didn't make a lot of sense. And that is uh, to put a lot of these programs under the supervision of the courts, which this is no slight at the courts, which, you know, if, if we're talking about legal acumen, uh, they're, they're top shelf, but they don't have uh, institutional competence when it comes to the handling and, of classified information and the gathering of foreign intelligence. And a lot of that stuff I've always felt should not be under the auspices of the court, notwithstanding that since we enacted FISA in 1978, more and more of it has been put under court control. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, putting it under court control turns the court into a rubber stamp uh, because they certainly don't want to stop important intelligence collection. And most of it is not most intelligence collection in the foreign realm is not uh, directed at people who are in the jurisdiction of the courts. It's foreign people in foreign countries who uh, often have uh, America's best interest, not at heart. Um, but my here's, here's my problem. My argument has always been that th this is a realm that's intended to be controlled not by legal processes, but by political processes. And what I've always said is that um, the powers are there, even though they can be terribly abused, because they're critical to protecting national security. And if they are abused, the thing to do is not to get rid of or curtail the powers. It's to punish the abusers, to get them out. And what I fear is that what we've seen over the last decades is that the political controls have broken down. I mean, we don't discipline anyone anymore. We don't censure anyone anymore. We certainly don't impeach anyone anymore. And it's hard for someone like me who for years has said, you know, look, trust our political system uh, to get accountability uh, when that accountability is not forthcoming to continue to make the argument that, uh, you know, the courts are the wrong way to go with this. And I don't I frankly don't know what to say about it because. You know, we could we could put more and more of it under court control. They can maybe not get rid of these powers, but say you now need a warrant to, you know, ask any question you want to ask of a, a database rather than leave it to executive discretion. But the problem, Buck, is that putting it under the under the auspices of the courts is not going to make the court any more institutionally competent than it is now. 
Yeah, and I have to say, I don't want to conflate unrelated issues, but when you look at the uh, the targeting that the IRS engaged in for, and, and this is a matter of, of record, right, uh, for ideological purposes, yep. partisan purposes, n- there was no accountability on that score whatsoever. I think the IRS is probably the only thing more terrifying to people in this country than the possibility of an intelligence or law enforcement uh, police state and its tactics. Uh, the IRS didn't have, there was no accountability there. I think that we do have to start to look again at some of the assumptions over how much we can trust the government to self, uh, self-police when it comes to collection of intelligence that looks like it's, it's perhaps being abused. I don't know. I mean, I would like to see Donald Trump, he's commander in chief. I'd like him to make some of this information public so we can finally know what is what, as opposed to just the, this war of, unsourced uh, information on one side or the other about what really happened here. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I would I would say that along in the broad trajectory of this, when you look at the IRS scandal, you look at some of the uh, Justice Department prosecutions, for example, of the the uh, the producer of the video that they wanted to blame for the Benghazi uh, matter. Um, the prosecution of Dinesh D'Souza, who was a major political opponent of the administration, uh, the the targeting of journalists that was done uh, in order to, you know, gather information supposedly about leaks. Um, but if you go along fast and furious, another uh, similar situation, when you look at all of these different abuses of government authority, it's highly unlikely to me to believe that they were uh, pristine compliant with the law when it comes to foreign intelligence collection authority, which is much harder to get accountability on than these other things that are that are actually, relatively speaking, more transparent than what goes on with the intelligence services. And I do worry that the, oh, it's classified or, oh, sources and methods – are used as as cover for politicized and unethical activity sometimes. And that's it's very hard to get around that, as you know. Yeah, it, it is, although I don't see why couldn't you come out with a list of officials who asked for unmasking of the names of Americans. It's, it's something that the intelligence community keeps, and I could see that you could get disclosure on that, uh, without having to compromise any intelligence methods and, and secrets. Just tell us who in the Obama administration uh, was unmasking Americans. Uh, it be, I think it'd be, it's very interesting already that Susan Rice, who really is a political person, not an intelligence officer. I mean, I, you know, she's the head of the National Security Council, but that's a kind of a glorified White House. Position. Yeah, she's a White House she's, advisor is what she really is. Right, and and her political advisory role certainly was conflated with whatever intelligence advisory role and national security advisory role she was doing with the president. But the point is, she's a White House person. You know, why does she need to be the one who's unmasking people? Why do we read in the New York Times that when the FBI was investigating what was going on between Flynn and the, and the Russian ambassador, which I think when you look at it was, was not at all unusual or improper, but why was the Obama administration uh, – why was the FBI in consultation with Obama advisors, as the New York Times put it, in connection with that investigation? I mean, it, it used to be that we thought 
uh, law enforcement collusion with the political side of an administration's house was a, was a pretty big scandalous deal back in the day. Andy McCarthy is a best-selling author, and he is a contributing editor at National Review. Check out his latest on nationalreview.com. Andy, uh, always great to have you, sir. Thanks for making the time. Thanks so much, Buck. Oh, we got some call. Chuck in Mississippi, WJDX. Hey, Chuck. Chuck and Buck. Hey. Yeah, how you doing, man? Good, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. I just I have a quick question, really more of a, a point of clarification that I need. So when we have all of these people who are in these government jobs and they abuse the power that the, that, that has, uh, that's been given to them, uh, they can only be censured or they can be impeached, but there is no criminal action taken against them and they're not persecuted or prosecuted? Well, it all depends on who, who and what we're talking about here. Uh, any just you know violations. Uh, I'm sorry. Use the, use the lowest learner thing with the IRS. I mean that's a clear abuse of power and probably criminal action. And I don't see anything that ever happens to these people. And I don't understand it because if it were me doing something in the private world, I would be under the jail. Oh uh, yes. Well yeah. I mean that's that that's helpful to to give your que- to be able to answer your question in a meaningful way. And you look at the case of Lois Lerner, and people were. Uh, targeted for their political beliefs, and, and this is this is again not supposition. This is an analysis. It's just reality. We just know this is what happened. This is what the facts of the case were. Uh, and she stepped down from her job. I, I can't do. It. Was she asked to resign or did she stepped down? I think she stepped down. And I know she pled the fifth, or pleaded the fifth, uh, and that was it. And she retired with a pension, and that was the end of it. And nobody else was ever was ever held accountable for that. Uh, how can we have any faith in our government's ability to police politicized injustices and the abuse of its authority for partisan ends when nothing came of the IRS targeting in an election year, by the way? I mean, I know we've largely people forget about this now, but who, who knows what the downstream impact really was of targeting people? in an election year in this way and, and shutting down these groups. And you remember, it's, it's not just about the group you shut down. It's about the other groups that don't see a successful conservative Tea Party group uh, that they may want to join or they may want to start their own. Or, you know, there are ripple effects to each one of those um, acts of political discrimination that the IRS engaged in. So, you know, Chuck, uh, the answer, I, I don't have a good answer. Um, I, I know also that... Why, low- isn't there, why isn't there some type of of system in place it says if you abuse your power that you you can uh be charged cr- with criminal action i mean that oh, is- well, but it is in place chuck it's just they don't charge them and we just had andy mccarthy on he was a federal prosecutor for over 20 years and, and he would tell you that they can always choose not to prosecute i mean there's there is nothing that ever forces a prosecutor's hands and when you're talking about a a federal government agency where there's malfeasance Unless it is politically profitable uh, and politically a benefit for the uh, the you know the federal prosecutor's office DOJ to go after one of one of their own you know s- sometimes they like to make a big show of cleaning house right sometimes the DOJ will go after some entity somewhere uh, but for the most part th- you know bureaucrats are going to cover for other bureaucrats uh, and. Uh, 
until these people are brought to some sort of action, the same things are going to continue to happen. And there's not, there, oh, there's no consequences to slap on my wrist and I can go retire with my full, my full pension or get another government job somewhere else at a different time. I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, look, I, I agree it's ridiculous, Chuck. I, I wish I had a more satisfying and thank you for calling in, by the way, Shields High. I wish I had a more satisfying answer other than, yes, bureaucracies do this. This is unfortunately one of the uh, one of the truisms or one of the truths of the federal government is that they can get away with uh, a fair amount of, of stuff. Wait, we have I didn't get to play this before. Did we play? We didn't play Spicer's. Sorry, I know I'm going back to we had Andy come on and I, I meant to play this. But on the tax return question, did we play Spicer? No, we did not. Right. All right. So Spicer was at the press conference today. Here's what he said about Trump's taxes. Same thing that uh, that was discussed during the campaign trail. The president uh, is under audit. It's a routine one. It continues. Um, and I think that the American public know clearly where he stands. This was something that he made very clear during the election cycle. Excuse me. And hold on. And, and so and, and the one time that it was done, I think the people understand you know, how successful the president's been and how much he's paid in taxes. So, but, but it's the same, we're, we're under the same audit that existed, and, uh, and so nothing has changed. Is, is it time just to say once and for all the president is never going to release his tax returns? Um, we'll have to get back to you on that. If you want, I mean, you see, I mean, really. Really. So he may. No, I, I said I'd have to get back to you on that. I think that we're, he is still under audit. The statement still stands. I want to make a a prediction here. I think that Trump will release his tax returns, but I think he will wait uh, until there's a period of time where the media has nothing else to go with. For once the Russia investigation dies down a little bit, maybe because they just can't they can't keep manufacturing interest without providing any facts. I would be willing to bet that at some point in the next year or so, you will see Trump produce tax returns, I don't know, however many years or a number of years. Uh, but it will only be if it allows him to just throw a, a flying elbow at the media and the people that have been whining about this the whole time. Fasc- so so it'll, it would be a, a trap, essentially. He's playing, uh, you know, Trump would be playing uh, possum on this one, or he'd be acting as though he's, oh, no, if they get my tax returns, you know, um, if if they get my tax returns, then what's going to happen to me? And then he'll release them. And they'll see there's nothing in them, and the media will look really stupid for talking about this for so long. I think that's very possible. That that's I could see that happening. Don't don't ask. I can't tell you why. That's just my my inclination here. But the the response there from uh, from Spicy was a little kind of eh. Um, but as I said to you before, the federal government already has its tax returns. This isn't like they've been locked away in some security deposit box in like a bank in Zurich. Uh, and nobody can see them. Like, they, they know what the tax returns say. The people have already been able to go over them work the federal government. Um, and also, you see the breakdown of this, by the way. I forget what the exact numbers are, but, like, 70% of Democrats think the tax returns are a big issue, and 70% of Republicans don't think it's a big issue, so. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. What I do have... A very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. The problems are so numerous, so egregious to polite society's sensibilities, 
that polite society just doesn't come here. Like everything in culture, if you don't hear about it or see it, walk the streets or step in the people's shoes for a week or a day or even an hour, then it mustn't really be happening. Lines from Selena Zito's excellent piece, A Fragile Hope in Ford Heights. Selena joins us now. She's a CNN contributor, New York Post columnist, and uh, also writes the D.C. Examiner. Selena, thank you for making some time. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, all right, tell us about uh, your piece, A Fragile Hope in Ford Heights, and what you think it's, uh, it, it illustrates about the current American condition for those who are left out and left behind. Well, I, I stumbled across from Ford Heights as I was uh, driving across the country. I went on the old Lincoln Highway, which is U.S. 30. It goes from New York City, Times Square, all the way to, uh, to San Francisco. And it's the first transcontinental uh, road in this country. It was built over 100 years ago. And I stumbled across Ford Heights uh, coming out of Indiana. You, you feel as though you're in a very rural area, but you are not more than 20 miles away from Chicago. And the moment I, I sort of drove into the town, the city limit, the village limits, I'm not sure what its category is. I think it's actually a municipality. Um, it, it, it was as though there was a red line marking it. It was. It, it looked like what you thought maybe Beirut looked like in the 80s. It was. There, there were there were abandoned buildings everywhere, abandoned homes. There were abandoned housing projects, gas stations. Uh, it looked like um, you know businesses that at one time it possibly thrived. And and it, it was it was the saddest thing I've seen. It's it's a it's a black suburb. Ninety seven percent of the residents that live there are are black, and uh, they have a unemployment rate for twenty four year old men, twenty four to thirty year old men. I believe it's in the sixty percentile. Poverty rate is at the eighty percentile. There is uh, corruption on every level in the police force, um, well, you know, within city government, and it, it, it's, it is no different than the white towns of Appalachia that I saw throughout the election cycle, and, and it is it's really quite tragic to see that in our country. Uh, you were among the very few who is credited with with both seeing and understanding uh, the Trump wave in this last election. Uh, I believe, Selena, you you very uh, famously were were quoted as the person behind uh, that the media took Trump uh, literally, but not seriously, and Trump voters took Trump seriously, but not literally. A, a, a great line. Um, but you saw you've been to these towns. You traveled across the country. You've seen what the despair in towns that are left out feels like and looks like, and you've talked to the residents, uh, what is it you think that they are expecting, or why is it that Trump was able to resonate with them? Well, Trump Trump was able to resonate because he, and, and people will laugh, but the Make America Great slogan is actually really aspirational. It, it, it makes people want to be part of something bigger. They want to be part of something that is better. And, and that clicked. I mean, this populist movement that we're, uh, we're in right now, I should say populist moment that we're in right now, 
it, November 8th was not the beginning, and it wasn't the end. We're right smack in the middle, and I've been chronicling this since 2006. In fact, I remember writing in 2006 as I noticed, as, as I, again, was driving across the country, and I kept telling people, uh, the Republicans are going to lose the House, and it's not going to be pretty. And people sort of laughed at me. But the same sort of thing I heard about Trump. But people were dissatisfied. They kept saying that, you know, we keep sending Washington a message and Washington keeps misreading it. So that's why they keep flipping back and forth um, with House majority. What is the message? What do what do people in these towns not? I mean, Ford Heights, you wrote about just recently, uh, which you said is predominantly African-American. But in any town that is left out in any part of this country that doesn't even have the focus of media and political machines and others on it to try and do something. I mean, people talk a lot about Detroit. No one fixes Detroit, but people at least talk about right. it in the places that aren't in the spotlight. Uh, what do what is their message? What do they want the government to know? First of all, stop promising things you can't deliver on. You know, that false hope that has been raised by generations of politicians um, has has sort of spurred this movement. Everyone comes in, we're going to do this, we're going to bring back jobs, we're going to bring back, you know, this or that. And and every time they say that, they don't they don't sort of follow through with it. Don't say something you don't mean, and 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 don't overpromise. And and you know, in towns like Fort Heights or in Braddock, Pennsylvania, or in you know these small Appalachian towns that I see all over the place because of where I live, which is in Pittsburgh, you know, part of the problem with government is that they keep trying to recreate what a town used to be instead of adapting to what a town currently is and making the, making the conditions better. You know, we've got a big problem in this country, and I don't know what the answer to it is, but it, it, the problem began right after World War, World War I, I would argue, and that's technology. It is taking away jobs at a fast clip. You know, 20% of males make their living by transporting something somewhere, whether it's Uber or F, you know, um, FedEx or UPS or whatever, whatever their job is. They're driving a tractor trailer. Within five years, most of those jobs are going to be gone. This is an immensely... Immensely important point, Selena, you're making. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to, to, to say that this is an issue that uh, we'll have to have you back on again in the future to talk about because I've been wanting to address it more on this show. I see this both in the media but also from friends and contacts of mine in different industries all across the country. Uh, one in ten people in this country right now works in retail in some capacity. Retail stores are going away. Brick-and-mortar stores are in trouble across the board. Major clothing retailers that everyone listening now would know, they are shedding, I should say, they are firing. I mean, you know, not to be too polite about this. They're firing people all over the place, and it's not coming back. You mentioned transportation. Uber, I forget what the numbers are, but Uber, I I believe, employs seven figures worth of people across the country at this point. And they're trying. Their whole business model is premised on artificial intelligence and self-driving cars taking over. And you mentioned with trucking, uh, also active financial management and stock brokerage and you know mutual funds. This is now algorithmic, algorithmically driven. 
where are the jobs going to be? Fast food places, just, people are being replaced by machines. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, look, on one hand, scientists are telling us how we're going to live longer. Well, what the heck are we going to do? We're not going to have any jobs. You know, even in my own industry, in the newspaper industry, I was, you know, bought out of the newspaper I work um, worked for for 12 years because, you know, things were changing. And and as far as, re, I mean, first of all, here in Pittsburgh, I don't know if you know this, but Uber has headquarters here. There's driverless cars everywhere, and it freaks me out. It totally freaks me out. It's just too weird for me. I'm the kind of person that likes to get in the car and drive. I don't, I don't, I don't know that I ever want to be in a car that's driving me. But that's just because I'm old. But you know, and American Eagle Outfitters is also um, located here in Pittsburgh. Well, they just decided to close what 400 of their 1,100 stores. Why? Because they want people are buying everything online. Those are jobs. Those are careers that that are just sort of wiped out. We are technologically wiping ourselves out of so many jobs. It's 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 remarkable. Last week I had a story about um an old motel on a um on a highway off the Pennsylvania Turnpike and the guy said I asked the guy I'm like why did you abandon this motel? And he goes, "Well, power steering was the beginning of the end for the motel." And I'm like, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, power steering." People used to get really tired driving a car with power steering because it was big and it was large and it would get exhausted. And, and, and so that's just an instance of technology also impacting lives, impacting commerce, impacting, you know, people's small businesses. And, yeah, there are, as of 2012, I just want to get some, the, the total number of taxi cab drivers in the United States. So, sorry, when I said six figures for Uber, I meant all uh, or seven figures, I meant all cab drivers, all Uber drivers, all people involved in localized transportation across the country. There are, uh, according to uh, Google here, 233,000 ca- taxi cab drivers in the United States. And Uber has, in the six figures now, of drivers across the country. They're not considered Uber employees, really. They're contractors. But you will have you will have six fig- hundreds of thousands of people, at a minimum, will lose their jobs uh, if we move to self-driving cars. And as you know, Selena, we are moving to self-driving cars. This It's a question of oh. when this is going to happen. And where is, is it, not everyone can be a computer coder. I mean, this is the, some of the other industries that people think they're going to go to. Uh, there's actually not their labor. Uh, they're the opposite of labor intensive. One individual does the work of many. Right, exactly. I mean, coding was supposed to be the new blue collar job, right? Well, I'm sorry. Not every brand buddy's brain was meant to code. I know. Mine isn't. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would be fired in five and a half seconds. They'd, they'd take one look at my ability to do that, and they'd be like, that is, that's not going to work out. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that we have a problem, and it is a problem that's only growing. You know, I see the opioid crisis firsthand where I live, let alone when I get out on the road and, and start, you know, covering these little towns across the country. I mean, Part of that is hopelessness. Yeah, I could imagine hopelessness, unemployment, the easy access to the drugs, the cost of some of these drugs is actually not very high at all. And the potency of the high is like nothing else that's been on the market before. So we've we've done a little work here on the opioid crisis. In fact, Selena, if you have any uh, reporting you do on that in the future, please give us a heads up. We'd love to have you back on to talk about it. 
Uh, we got to leave it there okay. for now. Selena okay. Zito is a New York Post columnist, also DC Examiner, and a CNN contributor. Selena, thank you for all your work. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, team, I, I told you about this story, but it, it's it's worth repeating. You know, there was this family out in Racine, Wisconsin, and their house caught on fire, and, and nobody was home, thank heavens. But it took a bit for the neighbors to even notice the problem. And at the end of the day, there were $40,000 of damage done, and there were priceless items that were gone. Family heirlooms were charred beyond recognition. Because if you're not there when a fire starts, who is going to be there to save your home? Well, for Simply Safe Home Security user Trisha, Simply Safe was there. You know, she was on vacation, her house caught fire, she was three states away. But with Simply Safe, her smoke alarm went off. The fire department got there and was alerted immediately, and they were able to save her home. Simply Safe's round-the-clock professional security monitoring is just $14.99 a month. I have a Simply Safe system at home. It's so easy and user-friendly. You just set it up the account online. You set up the base station, and then you pick where you're going to have your motion sensors. Put them on your windows. Where are you going to put your smoke alarm? Where are you put your carbon monoxide detector? And once it's all there, you can even control it from your smartphone. Get 24-7 connection dispatch and lightning-fast response times in emergencies with Simply Safe Home Security. Order today, and you will get my special 10% discount. Go now to simplysafe.com slash buck. That's simplysafe.com slash buck for 10% off your home security system. Simplysafe.com slash buck. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. We just heard a very uh, difficult, uh, the story of a difficult and downtrodden uh, situation, an area of the country uh, where it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of hope. Well, I want to give you the other side of this now. Um, and talk about how even rural areas of the country that don't have a whole lot of an investment or a whole lot of outside attention um, can become hubs of jobs and innovation and growth. We have our friend Tom Rogan online. He has a piece in the Washington Examiner, Innovation and Industry, How a Small Michigan Town is Securing Its Future. Uh, Tom, great to have you. Good to be with you, Buck. Hey, Tom, we just had Selena Zito on to talk about her piece before you came on, A Fragile Hope in Ford Heights, about what it looks like when a small town is forgotten, left behind, no attention from the government, no uh, no dynamic industry or growth. You have written a piece about what it looks like when a town has the opposite situation. Again, a small rural area. Walk us through how this can work. Yeah, so I was recently up in Escanaba, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula, and my experience there of spending time uh, with, with the people, and again, they voted for uh, President Trump by about 65% to 35%. Um, so pretty, uh, pretty overwhelming vote for the president, but unusually so in the sense that previously it's been a, you know, one of those areas that, it, if only leaning Republican, um, has certainly had Democratic influence. What are they doing? Well, number one, they have a great setup in terms of their community college. Uh, I say great because the leadership at the top, the president, uh, Dr. Laura Coleman, very impressive, very bright, very entrepreneurial, recognizes the need to balance costs alongside options. But the courses that they offer are specifically designed to fill gaps in the marketplace. 
And I point out two in my, in my piece, which are mechatronics uh, and water management. Um, the first one, I basically didn't, do not understand at all about, um, but the focal element of it is that it, it's training high-skill uh, technical um, labor. And so the individuals that are graduating from that course are immediately able to find jobs uh, and earnings over a career that are far greater than perhaps um, in other fields. And then in the water treatment, there are 15 times as many jobs as there are graduates. So the college is trying to provide opportunity at lower costs, and again, all the costs of tuition are a key element for them, um, for students. At the same time, the local businesses are all joined together in terms of trying to provide as many opportunities that they can uh, in terms of work experience, et cetera, but more in the sense of trying to uh, encourage people, to, if you want a job, here's how you can do it, here's how you can get on the board, and, and joining together as business owners to address in a concerted sense political community leaders about what they need to change to make things better. And do you think this is a look every every town is is unique and every economic situation that faces every town has uh, ingredients and and factors that can't be directly replicated elsewhere but do you feel like this is a model what you saw uh in S Kanaba Michigan uh would work elsewhere what what are the lessons that you would think or you would hope that other small towns that want to have similar uh, opportunities especially for those who are maybe switching jobs or just starting out um, what are the ways that they should go about that? So I absolutely do. I think that the key element is that you need a, a sense of community in terms of organizing, getting business leaders together. Oh, gosh, you just uh, said community and organizing very close together there, Tom. I got worried for a second, no, but keep no, going. No, well, I know. Well, let me clarify. I mean in the sense of the, the local business owners, medium to large-sized businesses, and indeed small businesses, you need, they have a, a, a economic club, the Delta County Economic Club up there that meets regularly, that discusses issues of concern, and then comes as a group towards the politician or local government to be able to say, hey, we're all on board on this, so pay attention. That gives you more weight of voice, right? It gives you more influence in a positive direction. But also the community college center. What is the community college designed to do? Is it designed to train and equip young people and indeed some older people with the skills they need to be able to pursue their own better futures uh, or is it designed to provide just a generic education uh, does it innovate in the sense that bay college in delta county does uh, in the sense of, that i described of those programs offering unconventional programs that are de deliberately designed to give individuals after they've completed again at a low cost basis uh, that opportunity to go forward so i think the focal issue though is what is the role of government um, and, and I think most people uh, in Escanaba would say limited, but, but what should government look like when it's doing things? So one example at a national level is my takeaway. I think we should be giving a lot more Pell Grants, for example, to places like the local community college I saw there rather than expensive private institutions, because I think the bang for the buck, especially for people who perhaps don't have those same opportunities, is much larger. And again, Escanaba is a good example uh, because a lot of individuals, sadly, uh, younger individuals there, um, uh, are afflicted by, at least statistically, you know, in a proportional statistical sense, afflicted by the opioid crisis. So this is not, you know, this is not a picture-perfect place, uh, but the community in its different elements, not community organizer in some weird Marxist adventure into, you know, no man's land, but a serious, tangible 
uh, sense of community that's vested from different interests, business, education, um, coming together. That That is, um, it, you know, about outcomes. How do we focus limited resources on provable outcomes that can benefit everyone? Now, I know you, you touched on this, but I, I think that it really needs uh, widespread attention. There needs to be something of a, of a national rethink about shoveling everybody and there's really a social pressure and and this has just become what the machinery is shoveling everybody into four-year expensive liberal arts undergraduate programs when you know this is you you can really look I, i can only speak for myself but most of the stuff that you really need to know in order to pursue a liberal arts education the rest of your life, you know if you have a pretty decent high school level education. You know, you read, you write, and then it's a question of what do you want to learn and what do you want to do. Sure, you can specialize. I mean, I did politics and Middle East history and things like that, but I could have done a lot of that on my own. I, as somebody who went to, and I know you did do, Tom, went to one of these overpriced uh, you know, political science and, and English literature degree factories, Wish that somebody had taught me the basics of finance. Wish that maybe I had a little computer programming. Wish that more applicable skills had at least been an option. But I think not only are people shoveled towards these or pushed towards these uh, expensive undergraduate programs that don't necessarily translate into jobs or even useful skills, I think there's a, a tendency, and it comes from academia and it comes from the campus, to look down on training in skills as opposed to just everybody sits around decon not even reading Shakespeare deconstructing Shakespeare because they right. can come up with a better ending I, I, you know you hit the nail on the head and the connectivity point uh, from you know Escanaba that I saw uh, was that, that the you know again at, at Bay College you have a lot of these kids who you know what they, they perhaps haven't had the same educations um, in terms of um, you know, early college years that we have, if they're in their second year of an associate's degree. Uh, but they're curious. Uh, they're paying their own bills to be there a lot of the time. It's not parents paying. Um, they are personally invested. And the sense of drive and the sense of ability, right, that they are being, you can see, right, as I did talking to them, um, the sense in which they are being equipped with skills to succeed uh, is is inherently positive. Again, when you talk about the bang for the buck, right? That that everything requires an investment cost. But the counterpoint as well is that you know I, a, f- a friend of mine who you know actually you know he he arranged me to come up there and who who owns a valve manufacturing company up there, um, you know high value valve production things that for example you know the Chinese can't copy at a lower value because it's too important. It needs to be perfect each time. He said one of the issues that he has is that there are too few people in the area of Michigan, but broadly across the country, who can fill these roles. And why is that? Is that everyone thinks that to get ahead in America, to be successful in America, you have to have that plaque on your wall in your house that said BA degree, come summa, glory, Caesar, Republic, um, Law Day. Uh, and if not, you're devalued. And so as you say, I think we need this narrative that actually in our country, if you're providing a good uh, education and, and you're equipping someone with the skills to be able to earn good money over a career, develop business skills, right? That a plumber, electrician, whatever it might be, a valve manufacturer has those learning skills early on about how to set up a business. You are equipping people in a positive way. But not only that, 
There's nothing to be ashamed of about that. There's something to be positive of. And, and I think, again, to make this tangible, that's why I talk about the Pell Grants. How do we make it tangible? I think we actually have to say, listen, if you want to do that liberal arts degree, as you and I did, fine, we pay for that, right? But I think government with limited resources has to be putting money to fill gaps in the marketplace and equip people who at the moment are struggling uh, to be able to fill a, a job and provide for their own better future and society's better future. Um, so, you know, so it's a, it's a blending of learning experience, but also policy change. Tom, I, I know we're talking about domestic policy and education and jobs and economic and, and training for the workplace, but you are also an international relations wonk. And so before I let you go, I just wanted to know, what's your take on, you know, the world right now? Well, um, you know, as I, I, I said a, a, a month ago, I, I think when we talked, you know, that I would Look, I, I think you, you have to look at what's happened in the last couple of weeks. I, I certainly judge um, uh, the president's policy decisions uh, as someone who, who's not necessarily a fan of his very positively, because if you look at Syria, you see the recoalescence of the international community, certainly um, nations of the Middle East, but also the Europeans around the idea that America is back and leading. That counters and deters nations like Iran. Uh, it, impo it also helps in the sense of Saudi Arabia, right? Instead of throwing money at you know, Salaf Salafi jihadist groups to try and counter Iran, now they think, hey, maybe we should listen to Mattis. He's got a better idea, and he, and he gets that we're concerned. Um, on North Korea, the Chinese uh, taking more action than they've ever taken in recent years to try and counter the, Chinese, uh, the North Koreans, and, and behind the scenes even more than we've seen. Um, so we are in a very difficult situation. I think that the, the North Koreans of the ballistic missiles obviously is the, is the critical juncture. But I think the president is, um, you know, we're in a good, I, I, there is a, a good blend of someone who doesn't quite understand foreign policy, but has very good advisors around who does understand it, but has the instincts of uh, negotiation. And, and you know what, you, you functionally, you've got to give him uh, credit. And, and, and on the Afghanistan, on, on you know, bombing Daesh guys, ISIL guys in the cave, I thought that was hilarious, the media reaction to that, because anyone who knows anything about basic military strategy would say if you have an isolated environment with a collection of individuals who are opposed to you, what is the best way to deal with them? Well, mitigate risk to your own personnel in the sense you don't send them into the caves and drop the biggest bomb you have so you can take them out before they scurry away. Uh, we did that. That was the commander's intent on the ground. Instead of waiting, as President Obama did, and pontificating for months, including on the Bin Laden raid and potentially rescuing Western hostages from ISIS, Trump you know, said to the commander, defer control down to the, you know, the combatant commander, wherever he or she might be. And, and it's paying dividends. It's an early stage. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens with Russia. But but I think the last couple of weeks, um, you know, it's, it's a dangerous world, but it's, it's, there's a constructive American leadership bearing dividends. Tom Rogan is a contributor at Opportunity Lives and a writer at National Review. Tom, great to have you, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Mark. You know, Team Buck, people ask me about whether uh, I watch the show Homeland. And they say, well, you know, you were in the CIA. What do you think of Homeland? I'm like, well, first of all, I, I watched some of it. I watched the first season, and it, it's entertaining, and I get that, and it's entertainment, and it's obviously not a documentary. It's not supposed to be real. It's supposed to keep people interested and be compelling characters and all the rest of it. But when they had the scene where the main character, uh, played by Claire Danes, uh, has all the classified stuff on her walls when they come to her home, I'm like, look, you know, you can only do that if you're Hillary Clinton, all right? You're not going to get away with that otherwise. 
So, but I, so I, I just, it's not really for me. Uh, but anytime you have one of these shows, I mean, it was well done, but I heard it goes off the rails a little bit. Anyway, I've only seen the first season. I think there's like five or six seasons now. But anytime there's one of these shows about terrorism, um, where, you know, it's going to start talking about jihad and it's going to be some guys likely with beards who are going to be yelling Allahu Akbar and doing some pretty terrible things. You run into this, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, is this just contributing to an environment of Islamophobia? And this is how you get situations where, for example, in the Tom Clancy novel, The Sum of All Fears, the bad guys are jihadists and they send a nuke to America and they blow up a U.S. city. For the movie with Ben Affleck, they changed it so that the bad guys were uh, like neo-Nazis. Or there was like neo-Nazis from Europe, guys named like Hans and Dieter who were like, I have an idea. Let's bring back the, like, let's be the Nazis and blow up an American city to start this huge war. Yeah. And it's like, I, I don't know about you, but I, I haven't I haven't seen any. Any uh, bleach blonde, uh, you know, all dressed in black suit neo-Nazis trying to conspire to blow up much of anything, um, you know, recently as they're drinking scotch and, you know, oh, it's going to take over the world. Yeah. So they, they I don't know if you've seen it, the sum of all fears. That's what happens in that movie, though. And I knew that Homeland would have this was going to become an issue with them because, well, it's very Hollywood and it's a celebrated, celebrated series and everything. And sure enough. Without fail, on MSNBC, you have Mandy Potemkin of uh, You Kill My Father, Prepare to Die. Uh, you know, that that uh, playing that character from uh, The Princess Bride. Um, Mandy Potemkin was doing an interview about Homeland, and the social justice warriors, they're watching. They know that. So, sure enough, we are told, well, I'll let him say it, the following. So, in movies, it was cowboys and Indians and the Nazis, communists, you know. Now they've chosen the Muslim community, a community who's made contributions to the world of a monumental nature. Homeland has been criticized for how Muslims are portrayed. Yes, it is, and we have uh, taken that responsibility, and particularly in season six, we have tried to be part of the cure, not part of the problem. A different storyline. A different storyline where we're helping these people, and a storyline that shows in this case, in this year, in this season, and uh, that maybe it's the, and it, it is, uh, the white men in government and the military establishment that are the bad guys, not the Muslim community. That's, can we just, that, that's pretty breathtaking. I mean, this is the cure. The cure is that it's white men, the government, and the military that are the bad guys. What does that cure? I, how is that a cure for anything? Uh, I, look, I haven't seen this. I have a feeling I can kind of tell that instead of guys being like, Oh, yeah, like, I'm Dito. I'm going to overthrow America with the nuclear bombs, and we're going to just, you know, be like like these neo-Nazis with uh, spiky, bleach-blonde hair. And so, I mean, I, the sum of all fears thing, it is it's not—it was a bad movie. I mean, it was a Ben Affleck bad—it was a Ben Affleck bad movie, which is saying something, by the way. This is a guy who not only put out Geely, but made that Superman versus Batman movie, which— was uh, it, it, I had to keep watching for a while because I was like I cannot believe you could spend so much movie on a, so much money on a movie and make it so bad. Um, but this is on the, on the Ben Affleck side of things, uh, Ben Affleck bad ledger. And uh, here we have this guy who's clear, you know, he's clearly well, you know, we're, we're, we're part of the cure now. So instead of dealing with jihadist terrorism, which is the most lethal, destructive. Uh, you just look at the State Department numbers on lethal terrorism. Don't allow them to play the game of, oh, well, 
terrorist acts. There's more non-Islamic terrorism in America. Yeah, if you consider somebody writing, you know, free all of the, uh, you know, free all the the rats that they're testing in laboratories for pharmaceuticals, you know, eco-terrorists, that kind of stuff. Yeah, th- then then there's more terrorism that's not jihadist terrorism, right? You know, no more testing on animals or, or you know, don't drive SUVs and they, like, light a fire in an SUV somewhere. The FBI considers that technically in some cases terrorism. When you look at lethal terrorism, jihadism is number one by a mile. And that there's a show where they, I'm sure they're, they're look, I know they're, they're good guys. They're good guys who are Muslim. They're bad guys who are Muslim. As is the case in real life, right? We have Muslim allies, friends, neighbors, spouses, children, whatever. And a good number, unfortunately, of really bad Muslims who are trying to kill a whole lot of people in the name of jihad and Islamism. And this is just a this is just what the reality is, right? A very small percentage of the overall whole. But, you know, as I've said to you before, a small percentage of people in a city that have, you know, bubonic plague is a threat to the whole city. And a small percentage of the Muslim community that has jihadism or, or that are jihadists are a strategic threat to or can be a much bigger strategic threat to, well, Western civilization when you take it all the way to its its ends. Um, but I just thought that was interesting. So to get out of being Islamophobic, he's like, yeah, white men in the government and the military. Let's make them the bad guys and all feel better about ourselves somehow. Wow. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. More of those violent Berkeley protests over the weekend. This time in, uh, well, you had Antifa, which is a thing I've had to learn about. Antifa stands for anti-fascism. Of course, without any irony, you have these people that call themselves Antifa that want to, in some cases, shut down speech, not understanding that really at the heart of, of a movement like fascism would be the suppression of speech and ideas. Uh, but we'll get into how it is they self-justify that in a little bit. But you had some nonsense. Here, we can play some of the background from uh, Play uh, 13, some of the stuff you hear about these rallies. There's violence, punching. Go ahead. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you throw. You will never be us. You will never be us. We will never stop. We will never give up. And we will never give in. So you get the there's a lot of you know loud yelling and screaming in the streets and you've got people uh, who are um, uh, you know there's there's punching and there was one punch in particular that got a whole lot of a whole lot of attention uh, and you have violence breaking out and you have to think to yourself okay well why uh, why is it that this gets well first of all who thinks that this is a a good idea right you have some people that are going out to support trump and then you have these anti-fa anti-fascist protesters all dressed in uh in black from from head to toe uh dressed in the method of of the black block um they are out there and they're getting into a, a melee, a fight. I mean, this is all on video. We just played some of the people pounding drums and yelling, and then the police come in, and there's all of this uh, stuff that happens. And uh, it is, 
<laughs> it gets attention in the media. One thing that I find very notable about all of this is that there's not a lot of um, not a lot of hand wringing on the left about this, right? This this happens over the course of the of the weekend, and uh, the you don't see people on the left that are saying, "Well, this is." not representative of us or this is really an embarrassment uh and they all dress in black from head to toe like i said and that's a tactic that's been borrowed from the well it's called black block uh and it started out in the anti-nuclear protests of germany in the 19 i think it was the 1970s nuclear power uh, protests in germany and uh they were called the uh, schwarze block or black block and it's just a tactic that protesters use because it's much harder for police to give, uh, to identify people and to, um, y- you know, to deal with an unruly crowd that's throwing things, breaking things, tear gas and all that, uh, if they can't give a description, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, well, this guy just threw a rock at me and he's wearing a, a red, you know, he's wearing a red jacket and, you know, jeans and has a white hat on or whatever, if everyone's wearing black and they got their faces covered up, it's a lot harder to track them down. And it also gives a kind of paramilitary feel to um, what is, well, what is a an anti-fascist movement that uses the tactics of fascism without irony. Um, and, and they like to, uh, I, I, by the way, I've seen some of this. I saw it in New York City during the days of Occupy Wall Street. Um, they like to, uh, you know do this and they wear masks gas masks and they carry around gear and equipment with themselves intended to deal with police uh, activities and of course some of them also carry sticks and you know bats and other weapons with them uh but this is just it's complete and, and utter nonsense and yet we see this happening and there has to be some part of us that realizes that for the left, this is an outgrowth of what they're saying on campuses. This is an outgrowth of what a lot of progressive journalists seem to believe. Here's what I mean. If you take it seriously when people on campus say that there is speech that is so bad and so violent and uh, or I shouldn't say violent, the speech that is so bad that it is tantamount to violence and you have an obligation to stop that by shouting it down. Well, what if you try to shout people down and they don't stop? What if you try to sh- what if you engage in in your own form of counter speech, which is really silencing, which is what these anti anti fascist protesters do, and they're really they're rioters slash protesters. Uh, what if you uh, th- this happens right? You're 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 showing up and you're doing your counter protest, and it doesn't stop the protest from happening, um, and then do you feel the need? Do you feel the moral compulsion to engage in an act of violence to stop the violence that you think is their speech? I know it's cra- it's crazy to you, it's crazy to me, but look at what they say on these campuses. Look at the way that they describe speech that they don't like. They say that it is similar to violence, and uh, they are now increasingly taking it upon themselves um, to do anything and everything to stop people from saying things that they don't like. Uh, And progressive journalists who have been saying that Trump is not only, of course, a traitor and sold us out for Russia and all the rest of it, 
but progressive journalists who say that Trump is becoming a fascist. You know, is, is that all for show? Is that all some kind of uh, th- just theatricality through right? If it is, it's, of course, deeply irresponsible. But if they believe that, well, then Trump supporters are tantamount to brown shirts, right? Then Trump supporters are neo-Nazis or fascists or and who if we could go back in time and square off against the brown shirts in the street, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, well, then you should take this all into your own hands. So I just see what's happening. And I know it's small and this is part of it, too. It's only a few hundred. And so we're talking about a few hundred people at a protest. But it's not just these people that are out there actually punching and kicking and screaming and and doing all of this. They're encouraged by the current political climate around Trump. They're encouraged by people on their own side of the media. Uh, They are encouraged uh, by the atmosphere around Trump now that or or the atmosphere that's been created around this administration by those who say that he's a fascist. Look, they're calling themselves anti-fascists. Who where are the fascists that they're fighting against? I don't see any, but they clearly think they're doing that. They they clearly think they are. And uh, it's it's deeply uh, deeply troublesome. So anyway, I, I just I saw what happened in Berkeley. I want to talk more about what this does and the effect it has on free speech. Um, but I also want to hit a break here. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Also, by the way, BuckSaxon.com is live. You can all listen to the show there. You can uh, play on demand. You can download. Um, and also we'll be we post stories there throughout the day. I'll be posting writing there. Hopefully soon we might even be selling some merch, uh, some merchandise, T-shirts, Team Buck gear uh, on there. BuckSaxon.com is a site. Also, if you give me your email address there, we'll be able to include you when we start up a newsletter for the Freedom Hut. All that and more is coming. And uh, I'm going to hit a quick break here. We'll be right back. David French over at National Review. It's a very good piece on this. I would uh, recommend to all of you the, the battle, uh, the Battle of Berkeley. And uh, he writes the following here. The leftist mob has sown the wind. Now the world, the whirlwind looms. And here's what he writes. If the media accurately and comprehensively reported on leftist mob violence, it would see that a pattern has emerged. On campus and in the streets, a violent or menacing core seizes the ground it wants, blocks access to buildings, and shuts down the speech or events it seeks to suppress. This violent core is often surrounded and protected by a larger group of ostensibly peaceful protesters who sometimes cheer aggression wildly and then provide cover for the rioters who melt back into the crowd. After the riot, the polite progressives condemn the violence, urge that it not distract from the alleged rightness of the underlying cause, and then do virtually nothing to enforce the law and punish the offenders. This is, it's a very astute analysis, a very important uh, paragraph here from from David French over National Review. It's true, you see this happening. And this also then is uh, a variation on the mostly peaceful protest. Well, in some cases, there are protesters who are just exercising their First Amendment rights, and an unaffiliated, uh, unrepresentative Uh, group is in the same vicinity, perhaps under similar auspices, whatever the issue may be, whether we're talking about Black Lives Matter or anti-fa, anti-fascist protesters or whatever. And that separation is warranted. But there are also times when you have, and this is why the black bloc tactic uh, matters so much in, in, in these cases, 
where you have a large group where some people run out and punch others in the face, they break windows, they engage in, in illegal and violent behavior, and then they run back into the the rest of the group and they hide among the protesters, really. And those protesters are, in a sense, colluding in that process. They are they are helping uh, thwart any effort. Um, they're helping thwart any effort to hold anyone accountable here. Right. You've got two or three hundred people all dressed in black from head to toe. And then when someone does something bad, they run back into the group and they're like, oh, you know, we, we're just here, you know, just just talking. And it says, well, who's the guy who just knocked someone's teeth out or did, did that terrible thing um, a few moments ago? And the uh, the response, of course, is nothing. And then the the progressives that are covering this will say, oh, well, it's not fair to to paint with so broad a brush and to pretend uh, or to assume that this is representative of the broader aspirations of this group. What do these what do these anti-fascist protests? And by the way, I can't. I, how much of the of the people that are there? How many of the people that are there are alt are alt right? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, how stupid are the things that they say specifically? I, I'm not sure. My guess is is there were some pretty dumb things said by alt right people who were there or dumb causes. But you're allowed you're allowed to stand in a park and hold up signs. Obviously, you're allowed uh, to hold up signs for a cause that is um, either you must understand or it's just wrong or is disgraceful or that is if the First Amendment does not protect unpopular speech and does not protect speech that offends, it doesn't protect any speech at all. Um, and so what we see here uh, is, an in- is an instance where, once again, this will, this will be reported on Depending on whether it's right or left media, they'll highlight the violence or they'll highlight that there were most most of the people there weren't weren't engaged in this kind of violence. But what uh, so I, I think there's a more of a of a complicit nature in this than most people uh, seem to understand or suggest when, when you have this group, particularly of black block. They know what they know that this game is. They know what's going on. I saw this here in New York City with a black block pl- protests that were part of Occupy Wall Street. It's very clear what was going on. They were just trying to get away with breaking the law and then hiding among those who hadn't done anything. Um, but David raises a very interesting point here as well in his piece, uh, which is what do we do when this all turns bad in a big way? Uh, how does the country view this or how do we respond to this if at one of these protests things take a turn Uh, And you have real violence, which when you see videos of of people punching each other in the face, hitting each other with sticks and the hatred of what they're saying and screaming at each other, it it doesn't seem to me to be much of a leap at all to think that that one of these protests, which, again, it's only hundreds of people. But on the Antifa side, at least, I can draw a direct line between widespread and... um, widespread notions on the progressive left that receive support and what plays out in these Antifa protests, right? So the idea that speech from pro-Trump people is, again, tantamount to violence is the reason why you have these individuals who show up and think they should engage in their own uh, violence. And uh, here's what, so, so you could have the possibility of, of one of these getting really bad. I mean, imagine if there were serious, serious, um, injuries and perhaps even some people die at one of these. 
what that would do to discourse in this country and what that will do, of course, never mind, the, or not never mind, but putting aside for a moment, the tragedy of those who be lost in such a, a pointless and, uh, and, and troubling situation as a, a protest and a counter protest that turns violent. I mean, what, what a, what a horrible waste of, of anyone's uh, safety and, and, and anyone's life, possibly, if, if they were losing one of these situations. But this is, where, this is the, the transition that we've seen happening, and this is what I want to focus on. I don't have as much time to get into today as I wanted to, so we'll have to hit it again another time. Um, but the left no longer—the I mean, left now openly objects to speech that it doesn't like. Meaning the left now doesn't even pretend to be pro-free speech. They say that free speech that offends them too much, that is hate speech, no longer has not not only no longer has any protection, but uh, violence is the proper recourse. And this is not a a fringe belief. This is uh, taught on campuses now. This is given a lot of support. And I, I promise you, you will not see long pieces, long teary-eyed pieces over at MSNBC about how these movements have been, uh, these these movements against Trump are distorting the message or are, you know, stepping beyond acceptable boundaries here and everything. No, no they'll, they'll just ignore it mostly. Um, but for the First Amendment is in, at least in my generation, or for my lifetime, in unprecedented and dangerous waters in that you have one side of the political spectrum, and I know it's not all Democrats, but the heart of the Democratic Party right now is progressive and is far left. And I'm I'm hoping to maybe talk tomorrow about the difference between, as Jim Garrity points out in another National Review piece, New York progressive or New York liberal values versus Silicon Valley liberalism and how we are entering a different... And he's actually borrowing from a, a, a leftist writer who was talking about this uh, and how we have entered a new era where the leaders of the Democrat Party, the ideological leaders, aren't uh, aren't what they had been in previous decades. There was a long time where uh, the Democrats were at least pretending to speak truth to power and to be punching up was always the theme, whereas now they have an Alinskyite, uh, Alinskyite tactic or of freezing and destroying and punching down to make examples of people. But I'll have to get into that more tomorrow. I I find the chilling effect on free speech right now from what the progressives are doing to be uh, really disheartening. And I I do think this will at some point result in a really terrible incident of violence. And I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it never does. But you just you can't have people thinking that they're standing up against fascism and a fascist regime without somebody going too far. We saw this with people in the Black Lives Matter movement, where all of the cops are racists, cops are killers, cops are hunting young black men. It, it didn't happen in a large number of cases, but there were cases of people that were ideologically aligned with that movement that because of the overheated rhetoric about that, the lies uh, surrounding that movement, uh, there were people who took it into their hands to become uh, to become violent, to be to kill. Uh, as a result of what they thought they had, or what they had been told, or what they believed from Black Lives Matter, so we'll get into this more uh, later on in the week. But the the Berkeley stuff over the weekend is is a troubling sign of much uh, much larger issues that are playing out right now. As I said, please check out BuckSexton.com and uh, go to Facebook.com/slash BuckSexton. Follow me uh, there as well. 
Um, Team Buck, always an honor to have you with me here in the Freedom Hut. Looking forward to uh, having you with me here tomorrow night. Please tell a friend or two about the show. Got to keep growing the team. And until tomorrow, my friends, uh, have a safe rest of your day and shield time.